It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day and welcome to the Two Jacks, episode number 54 this week. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong. Very Very good. I'm still alive. I managed to survive a trip to IKEA yesterday. And, and find my oh, way out. Yeah, yeah. I always think it's a bit like joining the donor party going over the, the Rockies, that you, you, you might never be found again, which is why I think their, their meatballs taste a little bit unusual. You know, I, I think, think they are the remains <laughs> of the people who, who were rounded up at the end of the day, still wandering lost. My daughter got lost, you know, and we were talking about this story recently, a family story down in Melbourne, and she got lost in Ikea. In You're lucky you ever saw her again. And it took a couple of hours to find her, otherwise everyone was a bit panicked. Uh, easy. Did um, you get what you wanted, mate? Um, you can see in summer there'll be families sitting around having a relax in the air conditioning because it's a bit hot outside. I've even seen kids working away in the office thing there because the Wi-Fi is pretty good and you get a desk and a chair of your own. There you go. <laughs> no, I did wanted. not. That's the most important thing. Well, there you go. Well, at least you, at least you won't go through that awful, uh, <laughs> expletive-laden process I of know, assembly. I know, hoggies. You, they, they see the chap, young chap around who does that for you. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. It's a completely different industrial relations landscape to that in Australia. And in Matters, Matters Australia, I guess the most most viewed... Uh, defamation case is going on as we speak, and this is the action brought by uh, Bruce Lehrman against Channel 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. And the last few days, the last few working days, court days, have been taken up with Mr Lehrman giving evidence and being cross-examined for much of yesterday and a fair bit of Friday afternoon. Uh, we can't talk too much about what has what has been covered in the case. We'll have to wait for the federal court judge judgment there. I do notice it's a former Labor minister. Michael Lee is the is the justice I of the federal so. court, yes. Jack. Yeah. What would you say about about it to, as far as we can talk about the trial? It's it, it's going sort of fairly poorly for for Lerman, I would say. I don't want to comment on, on what happened uh, that night. Uh, but, uh, there are plenty of holes in the story that Brittany Higgins put up and there are plenty of holes in the story that Bruce Lerman put up. And that's still where we are. What struck me about it, though, was um, why do people do this to themselves? Well, he's, he's sort of nailed himself now as a cocaine user. His employment prospects would seem to be fairly dim, I would think, going forward, if I might be so bold as to say that. Brittany Higgins will give evidence. I think that'll be underway as we record this on the 28th of November. She'll be subject to cross-examination as well. And the only other matter of any import is the counsel acting on behalf of Lisa Wilkinson is Zubkrizantha and... uh, uh, she has been pre- prevented by order of the court, by order of the judge, um, from cross-examining Mr. Oh, on the same material that's already been cross-examined on. That's that's the that's the limitation. 
Right. So, so the, so the Channel 10, uh, council, he got his opportunities over the last day and a half. And now Higgins takes. And, and, the, and the judge. It does sound a bit like Jack Elliott's. The judge stuff, was keen it, that there not be repeat cross-examinations on the same material because he thinks that puts the witness at a disadvantage and he's perfectly right in that and saying that. It is a bit of a Jack Elliott example. I was a litigation lawyer for a long time and people often come to you and say, look, I want my life back. I want to be put back where I was before this happened. And the proper answer to give them is the law can't do that. And what often happens in these defamation cases is people want their reputation back. But when you sue someone for defamation, you put your own reputation on the table. And, and mm. it's subject to investigation, investigation yeah. examination yeah. under the court, yeah. cross-examination. Every aspect of your behaviour and conduct that could be vaguely seen as relevant uh, will be examined and, and put to witnesses So you've got to oath. ask yourself, given that, am I going to come out of this process with a better reputation? The answer is almost always no. No, you're not. Mm. Uh, and the only reason you do it is the hope that you get such a, such a big chunk of money um, that would make it worthwhile. But, you know, uh, lawyers really ought to say, this is not going to do what you think it's going to do. Well, it gets to that issue, doesn't it? You know, what sort of advice are lawyers giving people? Are they giving people the advice they should receive, the sort of advice that you just provided there, or are they saying, you beauty, here comes a pile of Yeah, well, this will surprise no one that lawyers do tend to act a bit commercially. But generally speaking, you would, you would at least, you would hope they've gone through the, the motions of saying, this is going to hurt you a lot. Yeah, the, Look, here's the upside and here's the downside. So why don't you start thinking about the downside and where this might all end? Um, I'm not sure that 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 advice is always given as keenly as perhaps it should be, Jack, because you do have to wonder why people like Mr Lemon and there are a number of other uh, very fine examples. The VC winning um, member of the SAS would, uh, would have done well to listen to good good sound advice that you just offered there too, Jack. <clears throat> it's something very, very different circumstances, of course. I mean, Mr Lehman uh, underwent a criminal trial that in the end came to a no trial um, because of juror malfeasance and then he could have just dusted himself off and walked away, um, but he decided to have a go. He had a go at a number of other parties as well, and those things have been settled. I believe there's been a settlement recently with the ABC, uh, and and I think matters will be drawn. I don't know what form of settlement, if any, uh, was offered from Nationwide News, that's News Corp, and, uh, because there was an action against Sam Maiden at news.com.au yes. as well. Yeah, lessons to be learnt there, folks. You think you've been defamed, and look, it is an ugly thing if you feel that you've been wronged and people are saying the wrong thing about you and you think, well, you you might have some recourse in the courts. It's an expensive and very... Yeah, I, I, I make no judgment about Mr Lennon's character at all, but I would say that there are a lot of people in the community whose lives wouldn't bear that sort of scrutiny very well, and you need to think about that. I think any life, really examined that way, examined forensically that way, that, you know, everyone's got the odd scandal. Oh, well, 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 well. Except for us, of course. 
Well, that's my closet over there, and there are no skeletons in it. But yes, yes, it is. It is something that that is particularly grueling, and 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 perhaps people should consider just where these things might go before they entertain a legal action. Um, the getting on to media matters now, Jack. A cohort of journalists, including from the ABC Guardian and Nine newspapers, have signed an unprecedented open letter. Uh, issued by the the relevant union, the Mass Media Entertainment Alliance, I think that's right. I'm not a member, obviously. M-E-A-A, I should say that. It's Media and Entertainment <coughs> Alliance. Uh, uh, have, have, so a number of journalists, I think we've got about 160 of them, have yep. signed this open letter um, and, and suggesting that Israel's devastating bombing campaign and media blockade in Gaza poses an unprecedented threat to press freedom uh, and emerged one day after Patrick Aboud, the co-host of the Walkley Awards, uh, on Thursday night called on journalists in attendance to push for a ceasefire in the Middle East conflict. That's not really a role for No, it, and that's what the, the media organisations themselves decided. Well, I note, I note that nine have said to their journalists, there's the signatories on that letter, and there was an all-staff bulletin went out on, I think, Monday. So um, basically any, any, any journalist who had signed that document cannot report or write opinion uh, on, that, on this particular... Well, this is almost a Caesar's wife situation. The letter, as I read it, takes a side. It's partisan, and that's perfectly okay to take us up but if you are in the job of reporting on the, on the, on the, on that news then you must be you know what's the old story about you must be like Caesar's wife you must be not just be on reproach but to be seen to be on reproach and and if you've taken a partisan view then you can't do that well it, journalists should be people providing reports, whether it's from the ground in Gaza or commenting uh, on reports, should be impartial. I think that's that's basically their code. I mean, there, there is, there's a code of ethics around journalism that talks about impartiality. And this, for mine, regardless of what you what what listeners may think about what's going on and has gone on in Gaza and, and who is to blame, those journalists really can't be turning themselves into activists. And, and I think that's the concern here. I notice a number of signatories, a, a number of people that I know well and call friends. But in the case of cartoonists and others, I guess it doesn't matter well, too well, because much. The, because they're writing opinion. Draw for the Guardian. Yeah, they're writing opinion, or, or drawing opinion, if you like. You know? Yeah, yeah. But you can't go on and report these things. If you, I mean, look, the other thing that really bothered me about that letter is, is that it took the casualty figures from Hamas without question. And, and I don't think we can do that. I don't think we can actually say, uh, that, that those figures are accurate. In fact, we may never know what the true casualty figures are, but to take one side's version of uh, of casualties, in this case Hamas, is is really basically stretching that impartiality to break it. It is. It's a. We have to distinguish between the people, as I said. But the, the cartoonists are, are doing opinion, and the opinion writers can do opinion. They can be as partial as they like. In fact, they're meant to be partial. 
but it's the reporting. Um, and journalism lost something when it became a profession rather than a craft because the people who did it as a craft were the reporters, very often not university, almost in, in, in inevitably not university educated. Um, you know, started school, um, started work as copy boys or copy girls at 16 or 17 and learnt the craft of reporting. And that doesn't happen very much anymore and we've lost something with, with that going. Um, former editor of The Age, Michael Gawenda, spoke really well on this. He is a Jewish fellow, of course. He, he said there was an obligation on journalists to be fair and accurate and not to be agenda-driven, arguing the individuals who signed the letter were, and I quote, acting against the codes of the organisations for which they work. That letter says that that letter says that context is very important when it comes to October 7, while the context they set out is contested. Every element of that context is contested. This is not the basis on which journalists ought to operate. I don't understand how ABC journalists can sign this letter. They have a code of practice. I'm, I'm quoting Gawenda again. I don't understand how ABC journalists can sign this letter. They have a code of practice which is legislated. It's a public broadcaster funded by taxpayers. I don't see how their House committee can sign or pass any sort of resolution of this sort. So I would expect that ABC management will repudiate that. Um, and they have to a degree, but they haven't, unlike Nine Media. They haven't polluted those signatories from reporting on, on, on Gaza. Um, the ABC hasn't gone that far. Yeah, the, the trouble is that everybody wants to have a view about this and to to make a statement about it. I saw overnight that the Dandenong City Council in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne um, was congratulating itself for passing a, a motion calling for a, a ceasefire. You sort of wonder um, why they would be doing that. Well, we, we <laughs> it's not the first time local governments have been involved in uh, global yes, political we, we, matters. We do remember the nuclear free yeah. zone that, uh, that, that, that uh, the nuclear free zone and, and, and in Northcote. Um, yeah. Can't allow to drop a bomb on it. No. Just not allowed to. Well, Don't the, the, the bombers come over and they um, see those signs at the edge of the city of Northcote saying nuclear free zone. They say, "Well, we can't drop a bomb here." That's it. You know? That's it. We can't. Yeah. Leave. We better just leave because we can't drop. We can't drop nuclear weapons on Collingwood. Yeah, so, yes, it's not unusual for councils, pointless as they are, to, to make entries into global or geopolitics. It's an interesting one, Jack. We'll see how it goes. I think now we're in a, a, a protracted ceasefire period. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And, uh, and we, I'm also going to ask you some questions about the political future of Benjamin Netanyahu. But before we move on to that, we're staying with Australian politics. Dave Sharma, former member for Wentworth, who had a junior ministry, didn't he, in the dying days of the of the Morrison government? Or no. perhaps he was sharing um, one with the Prime Minister. <laughs> You know, one of the I've ever seen. Yeah, he, he wasn't. He wasn't interested in being a co-minister or something. So yeah, no, Joe Sharma's a, a fairly impressive. Was a fairly impressive candidate from Wentworth. I thought a former ambassador, Australian he, he, ambassador, he was, right. and a very very smart fellow and and thoughtful. I think one of the better Liberal candidates. So um, I think it's probably a, yeah a moderate. It must be said, and 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 he clambered over the top. 
of Andrew Constance. Uh, there are one or two others there that were more of the Dutton, uh, the appointments that Dutton, perhaps, or Peter Dutton might have approved of. But the moderate Dave Sharma has got the job. He fills the he fills the vacancy left by the retirement of Maurice Payne, the former Defence Minister. It's a weird thing, isn't it? We, we, we should just explain what happens when senators retire because they can't hold by-elections. So, essentially, not always, but, but the, the party is called upon to replace that senator. Um, when I say not always, because so J.B. Occupy-Peterson... Uh, when a Labor member died in office, placed him with... Oh, Albert Fields. Albert Fields, his name yeah, was. Co- uh, constitutionally, what happens is that the because the Senate is the state's house, the, the retiring senator is replaced by a candidate of the choice of the state parliament. And that was supported in legislation. I couldn't tell you when, but it was supported in legislation yeah, post nineteen seventy five to basically iron out any sort of. It, is, it is now required to be the nominee of the of the party of the person to which the person re- retired from. So, what happens when an Indian decides to wander off, or indeed uh, suffers illness, or uh, something more? That will come back to, I believe, comes back to the the choice of the state parliament. Hmm. Yes, uh, these sorts of things happen a fair bit. In, in the case of Maurice Payne, she was the uh, former defence minister in the Morrison government, one of, one, one of the defence ministers in the Morrison government, and, and, and she announced her retirement and Dave Sharma will be and, filling it. It was a fairly highly contested race. Andrew Constance, I would have thought, I would have had Andrew on the moderate yeah, side. They're, of they're both too. the moderate part of the party, I believe. What Dave Sharma gets is he gets the remainder of Maurice Payne's current term. He doesn't get the full six years from today. He gets the what's left of her term. Yep. Mm. What now for Andrew Constance, Jack, who for the listeners outside of the New South Wales uh, area would may not know he was a transport minister in the Chicklian government uh, and, uh, and her, her predecessor. I was going to say Fatty and no, Farrell. It's Mike possible not to Barry O'Farrell. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, Mike Baird, yes, of course. I forgot about Mike, another moderate, and, um, and a, and a, and a and person was... who came out with his reputation well and truly intact after the fires of 2019-2020. That's Andrew Constance, that is. Um, and has been sniffing around for uh, by-elections. I think he, he ran in Gilmore, didn't he, he in the did, 2022 and, and election? Lost. He, he ended up being treasurer in the Peritate government, I think. And a, a, again, a very competent sort of fellow. And I believe both Sharma and Constance are, are part of the moderate moderates in the Liberal Party, and they dominated the vote. And and Sharma got the got the chocolates. Got the chocolates two fifty one to two oh six, and that's the New South Wales State Council. That's how many delegates they've got, more or less, four hundred and fifty odd. Yeah, look, so, so Andrew Constance, does he keep? Because he does he keep walking walking up and and, and striking out, or is he? Pack the bags and that. Uh, uh, is he going to be the Jamie Siddons of New South Wales politics? He would have been good if he got a go. You know? <laughs> the Jamie Siddons or maybe yeah. the Wally Edwards <laughs> who got a couple of tests and and, and didn't really do much in, in. Yeah, look, you would think if you've been knocked back that many times, probably time to pack it you, in. You, you could tell yourself, look, um, there seems to be a bit of a pattern developing here. 
Yeah, there is a little bit of a pattern emerging here, and it's not in my favour. Okay, Senator Lydia Thorpe. Yeah, she's, she's never long out of the news. Is she? There seems to be a sort of week or two where she's absent from reporting, and then she must think, oh, my God, I better say something. I better say something wacky. And she seems to have come up with something, with something suitable here. She's pledged to fight for the Palestinian cause. I don't know. I think if we ask the Palestinians, they'd say, look, it's very nice of you, but no She's thanks. Got- Telling protesters she will release a statement every day this war continues. I'm sorry to laugh about this. We shouldn't be laughing about war. I'm not laughing about war, but it's like she's issuing a statement. That's a, that's That presupposes that everyone's going to read that statement every day. And I can it, it presupposes not. that anyone's going to read that statement. <laughs> Well, even one, but if you're issuing one a day, I guarantee you as a journalist, you're going to press delete on the email button fairly quickly. Yeah, every day this war continues, she's threatened while she's telling Brodeur she will release this in order to prevent Australia from perpetrating and facilitating the genocide in Gaza. Her words, not mine. The, the, the idea that Lydia Thorpe's daily uh, presses will stop genocide. Is it, bizarre it is self, Jack. She's 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 got bigger tickets. Yes, it's it sort of it's quite remarkable that she thinks that the that even the Australian government will take notice of a statement she issues every day, let alone the people on the other side of the world. Um, all right, now we go to a, a particular ethical question, a moral question, a dilemma. Do you, when you go shopping, Jack, uh, when you pop out with the bag? Oh, I presume in Hong Kong they don't have um, uh, the, reu- the the plastic bag ban. You no, know, it, go it, out on a limb and say it costs you a, a dollar case. Hong Kong to get one. Get a get a get a plastic bag. Right. Okay. And, okay. and, well, and personally, personally, I pay um, that dollar because I use them as rubbish bags for my kitchen tidy. They're the perfect size for that. Well, yes, well, you're still polluting the environment, whether, whether you think so or not. Uh, we, we've had a, a very different thing here, of course, but it's not about plastic bags. It's about whether you go through the checkout uh, and be served by an employee of the supermarket or whether you uh, decide to whip it through... Um, uh, whip it through and the self-serve kind of can of all supermarkets in this country pretty much now have them. I've got to say, I get pretty annoyed with people who just bundle up there with the weekly shop, you know, just bursting with stuff and then just jump in the, jump in the self-serve aisle. And, 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 you know, it can take them 20 minutes uh, to get, get through it all. And of course, the supermarkets do this because they, they want to pay less staff. But everyone, not, not everyone's happy. No, there's been understand. a bit of a, a pushback against it. Personally, I don't use the self-service checkout thing. I, I take the view. I do if I've got a small number of items, large. No, I, 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 don't, I won't use it at all. They're clumsy and I don't quite trust them. And it's the other thing about them, they are very, very clumsy. I, I, I've noticed this, that they can actually sort of detect that there's something in your trolley alongside the, the register and it'll say, well... Have you forgotten something? And you've actually got to call a person over, uh, the, the checkout attendant, and uh, and they have to go through their their processes to to have to 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 move you on so you can pay. And it and it, and it can be things in your trolley that clearly the supermarket doesn't sell. I had a bag of meat from the butchers in there, and and it said, "Have you forgotten?" Something? And and you know, and and 
they've adjusted. They seem to be able, excuse me, folks, I just touched the mic there. They seem to be able to adjust these things because they were really sensitive for a while. Now and and if, a, if a bottle of wine should find itself into your trolley, of course, you, you have to call for assistance to, to prove that you are of age. Yes, there is that. I think we'd probably pass that without too much dicking. But the, the other issue, Jack, is there is a presumption that you're engaged in theft. And and sure enough, I think, you know, a, a few things do go walking through the self-service yeah. checkout. Uh, I, uh, one of the reasons, the biggest reason why I do the checkout, prefer the checkout, is that I, I rather enjoy the uh, the human contact of uh, saying hello to somebody. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm I only on the chat. No, it's always, it's always good just to have a bit of a natter. But we're, we're, we're finding that a lot of supermarket chains, this, this arises because supermarket chain in, I think in the UK, Booths is scrapping its self-service machines and replacing them with living, breathing, talking, thinking human cashiers. Take that AI. And no sign that the Australian supermarket chains is really only two biggies and then a couple of littlies, but no sign that they're going to follow suit. Um, yeah, how do you feel about it, listeners? I've got to say, I, I, I don't like it much. I don't like it much at all. And, and of course, you know, where there used to be 12 checkouts all running, all staffed by uh, often students, kids going to school, doing a few hours after, after school and those sorts of things, provides a lot of casual work and a good entry into a job in a supermarket. You do see a lot of people who are beginners checkouts, and then you see them running the bakery or running the uh, deli or whatever it is later yeah, on. Yeah, well, I used to be taken to the butcher shop by my, my father when I was a kid, you know, and, and, I, and I've always rather enjoyed that, you know, the human interaction you get from going to your, going, to, mm. going to do your weekly shop and all that sort of stuff, and I miss it. That I might add that yep. piece that I sent you came from The Guardian and it was written by Van Badham. And, and I, I just oh. like to say that I, I want to put my hand up and say, I actually agree with Miss Badham on this occasion. <laughs> very, very good. Very sound. And look, you know, bottom line is this is a, a method of, of reducing, of reducing the supermarket's salaries. So basically reducing, reducing the amount of labor on hand. I don't think, I, I find a lot of people will refuse to go to them. But I would also say just in what you, what you're getting back to there, Always make good friends oh, with your butchers. Always have good relations with your butchers. I'm playing golf with my butchers on Saturday. So yeah. well I get on with them. I'm well, so, I, I, I enjoy uh, it. It is always a good thing and always a good chance for a bit of a nasser and, you know, pick out your yeah, A little bit of banter. Have a good relationship with them. You can look a little bit askance at what's been cut on the tray and they'll scurry around and find something else to cut for you. You know, good relationship with your butcher and your yep. fishmonger. Always Trust me on this, listeners, make good friends with your butcher. As for other things, yeah, maybe we're just a couple of old blokes pining for the days of the general store where someone would go and pull stuff off the shelves for you. But really, there is that human contact. And I think it would be missed if we were just constantly having to do everything ourselves. I mean, that, that's essentially what the supermarkets want us to do. do a, pick it out for you. And if you're ever looking for something that's a bit, bit obscure... Don't expect to find anyone no, on the floor. No, no, no. The Dutch actually have one of the Dutch the, the government's Dutch government's campaigns is one against loneliness. They're actually pushing to have separate lanes for the elderly people in their supermarket so they can have a chat. Perhaps that's why I like it so much. I am an elderly fellow these days. Oh, that's that's a Simpsons episode. 
where you pick the right line according to the ones who will have a chat and those who won't. Um, and single men, getting that line behind the single men, no chatter, just just paying and just no chatter and moving on. And we must move on now away from away from matter of grocery to the polling, which is showing. Well, a news poll, Jack, has got got the coalition fifty fifty with with Labor. Yeah, a little, not quite fifty fifty. No, I just, think just well, it's not fifty fifty. I've seen some terrible analysis on this. If it was fifty, the coalition would pick up four seats, and Labor would still have majority government. Yeah. On on the on the basis of the polling on Monday, yeah. Peter Dutton's approval rating went down. Well, that got mentioned much, but only by a point. <laughs> but yeah, as it stands, Labor's primary vote on thirty one, Jack. LNP thirty eight. Mm. What are we talking about? We're we talking about a rogue here. That's a four point loss in the space of two weeks. I certainly think that that the government's got some skin off lately. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and look, it may be a rogue. It might be a little bit. Yeah, I don't. Outside. I don't think it's a rogue. <laughs> I think the government has taken a hit, and possibly if an election were held in the, between now and Christmas, they they'd scramble back with a majority or with a minority government. But that, Mr. Dutton's not going to become prime minister in a, in a hurry. Uh, Troy Troy Branston, your colleague from the Australian, took it fairly seriously. His view is the problem for Albanese and his ministers is not that it is an idle government, indulgent and complacent, satisfied merely to preside. The government has a large agenda. The scale of the transformations in energy, climate policy, etc., etc., etc. That's the problem in a sense. And Troy Branson's got this wrong. That's not, it's not the role of government to have a large agenda. You don't measure a government by how many acts it passed. I know Julia Gillard thought that, but it's absolutely wrong. It's the role of a government to govern, and that doesn't mean more is better. No, I understand. Yeah, look, I, 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 I agree with you on that too. One, one area of the government we talked about last week and have been talking about for a while is their communications. And they don't, you know, they've been soft. They should be attacking, attack, attack, attack. You know, I mean, this is something the Conservatives do very well. The Liberal Party does very well in government. They will attack their opponents. They'll attack Labor. Um, and one thing I've noticed just in the last few days, Jack, is that uh, I think someone, uh, someone, someone like a Tony Burke or perhaps even Albanese has, has, has said, "Listen, you know, we need to we need to remind people why we're in government." And why we're in government is because the other mob failed and we need to show where those failures occur. And if we push at those failures a little bit, we'll see Scotty Morrison up the back there in the chamber and we'll see Peter Dutton just across uh, the dispatch box. And so I noticed that there was a lot of criticism over uh, coming from uh, the Home Affairs Minister in regard to the, uh, the High Court decision. Uh, that we've covered significantly in the last two episodes, having a go at Peter Dutton for sitting on his hands. I mean, whether it's true or not, I don't really care. But what they're doing is attacking a bit more, and they need to do more of that. Um, they need to they need to get on the front foot. And, uh, yes, they need to lay out what they're doing, but they also need to you know get get their hands dirty with a bit of attack stuff. And I saw Tanya Plibersek, you know, the the Murray Darling scheme. Uh, the revised Murray Darling scheme has now been approved, or it's gone through. I think it's due to go through the Senate if it hasn't already, with the support of the Greens. 
And and she was interviewed on 7.30 by Sarah Ferguson last night and she was getting into attack mode on the Nats, really. She wasn't... She's not always great at it, I must, I must say, but... Uh, and and she made, she made a, a rather silly point there of... That it was, you know, that seemed to be sort of a finger was off the pulse a fair bit, but attack she was, and and that's where they need to do a fair bit more work. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's a bit of skin off, uh, and it's largely due to their communications. Um, the idea that Elbow was travelling too much, I mean, help me out, Jack. That, 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 that that's that's just silly stuff. A prime minister should. Yeah, be- the problem is not so much that not really that Elbow is travelling a lot. It's that when he was first became Prime Minister, I think he rather surprised a lot of people inside and outside the Labor Party as to how well the job seemed to suit him because no one really thought he was Prime Minister prime ministerial material for most of his political career. But just of late, he's looked a bit like the, the elbow that everybody knew who, who they didn't think was Prime Ministerial material. He needs to slow down a little bit and, and concentrate on doing his job which is to be the figurehead. Paul Keating used yep. to take a nap, Jack. He used to take an afternoon nap. We talked about this and, and the value of the nap. Perhaps Elbow should have a few more naps. We saw Kevin Rudd sort of running on rocket fuel, running out of rocket fuel in his prime ministership, you know, in these crazy sort of 16, 18 hour days. A prime minister should have time to think and reflect. Yeah, if you read Watson's book on on the Keating prime ministership, he would sit at home listening to Mail, which he, so, which Keating hates, by the way. <laughs> he, he does. He hates but that. One of the things that, that it showed is that there would be days when Keating would sit at home listening to Mail, and they're all waiting for him to turn up in the office to start doing stuff. But you have to have time to think. You have to have time to get it right and mm. to talk to a, a, a variety of people. But the running around, you know, the Kevin Rudd approach is just absolutely the wrong one to do it. Yeah, yeah. And oh, look, I think we could also say similar sort of things about Scott Morrison, who, who probably in 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 man hours worked his ring out, but for yeah, very couldn't walk past a microphone. <laughs> That's right, you know, and that that is that that, that do become. Obsessed media tarts, as Peter and Peter Beatty once referred to himself as the Queensland Premier. Yeah, time to reflect, time to pull back, time to reflect, and and also get on the front foot and give these clowns a biff. I mean, it's like they were never in government the way they carry on, um, and you know, and and when they were in a distant past, didn't put a foot wrong, and and I think people need to be reminded that they're not a perfect institution, the Liberal Party. More than actually. Well, party, well if you're a Liberal Party, you'd be doing exactly what they're doing. If you can get away with it, why not? Not, not yeah, not doing, not, not, not hurting them at all at the moment. But there, there needs to be a bit more focus on just who's there and and what they've done in the past. One of the critical areas for the government, Jack, is energy and, and Chris Bowen's role. He's struggling. There's no doubt about that. There are some real concerns about uh, Australian, Australia running, uh, which is government policy, 82% of renewable energy by 2030. So everything in the grid, 82% of everything on the grid has to be renewable uh, by 2030. And there has been a lapse in investment. Now, we can't say it's because of in, uh, lack of investment certainty, uh, because there is a, you know, a rolled out, a rolled-out policy here that exists in black-letter law, 
Um, so we're seeing a bit of a, a back off on some of the big investors, some of the institutional investors as well coming coming off the off the boil on climate change and renewable energy. Uh, yeah, we are. You can tell when ministers are not going quite well. They start using, they start falling in love with the Bill Shorten Zinger line approach, and, and I noticed yeah. that with Chris Bowen uh, when he was on Insiders yesterday. I think on on Sunday, rather. Didn't see that interview, but but yeah, that's a that's a really dumb approach. It's highly complex the stuff that he's doing, but the, pro- the problem is that there's not, there's not there's insufficient investment uh, into renewables in this country at the moment. So that's that's where he has to drive his relationships um, with uh, with the business sector. Um, but also, I think he he really does struggle. He's a very bright fellow, Chris. I've got a fair bit of time for him, actually. Very bright fellow. He's been around the Labor movement for a long time. He's had some of some of the Labor great stalwarts sort of mentor him, um, in, in, including his namesake, but not relative, Lionel. Lionel Bowen, I think, had a fair bit to do with his rise into politics. Um, and I just I just find he's, he, 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 he gets bogged down often in detail. And then he seems to have a bit of a glass jaw as well when he gets criticized. Yeah, I met him a few times when he was a, a young staffer, and I'm, uh, he hasn't performed up to at the moment. He's not performing at the moment up to the standard I thought he would be. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, you, you've, you've included something here from Chris Kenny, good mate of mine, uh, and he wrote on the weekend the hubris and self harm on display. It must be said, Chris has had very strong views. On climate change, he's been a bit of a, I don't think he'd like the term denier, but we call him a sceptic like yep. you, Jack. The hubris and self-harm on display here is monumental. A nation rich in coal, gas and uranium seeks to refrain from using these resources, preferring to conduct a world-first experiment in renewables plus storage, all the while insisting this will be cheap and reliable while generating jobs and economic security. It is delusional. That's a lovely little. That's a lovely little statement there from uh, from from. It, it's perfect op-ed stuff. It's delusional. Why is it delusional? Well, you don't have to worry about that too much because it just is delusional. And this is the the important important part of writing op-ed columns. You have to be certain and be certain that it's delusional. But there's no real evidence that it's delusional. The push the push for climate action generally comes from high income people who live close to the city centres. A look at the electoral map bears this out. I wouldn't say that's the case either, but the price paid for these policies is highest in regional areas. I mean, I'm talking about some of our farmer friends, listeners to this program, Jack, who contribute regularly to this program who are on the farm and, and are big believers in, in renewables. I don't know. What are, we, what are we talking about here, Jack? Are we talking about Luddites? Are you a Luddite, by the way? Would you be in 200 years, not that you should be terribly concerned about that, would you be in 200 years regarded as a Luddite? Oh, I'm a sceptic. I'm a sceptic about it, but then I'm a sceptic about almost everything. Yeah, I know you are. I mean, it's very annoying, actually. You don't believe in anything besides like the Sydney Swans <laughs> football club. And, and well, what, I, what I would say um, about this is that <laughs> I had a look at the, the International Energy Agency's worldwide figures, and it's true that renewables are reducing as a percentage of total energy. Sorry, that, that fossil fuels are reducing as a percentage of, of energy produced, energy consumed rather, uh, around the world. Um, but because the amount of energy consumed is increasing at a faster rate than the reduction in, fo- uh, in that percentage, the actual amount of fossil fuel 
energy consumed is going up around the world. So I, I yeah, yeah, that's right. Because more people are being yeah. hooked into electricity for as as, as yeah. we would want them to be. Rise yeah. to the middle class in in China. Rise to the middle class in Indonesia. Rise to the cl- to the middle classes in India. These are the three most populous nations in the yeah. world. I believe. Uh, may have Brazil, may have missed out on Brazil, but um, yes, that's what you're seeing. So you, 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 there is more electricity being required. And not not, there, not just electricity, but energy overall. I'm looking at the energy figures overall, mm. and and that's going to keep going up. There, there is you know, the only way that can be stopped is is if we tell the the Chinese and the Indonesians and the Indians that no, you're not allowed to become middle class like us, and that's just not going to happen. Well, yeah, I know, but I, mean, I don't think anyone's saying that. But there's also a bit of nimbyism in Australia, I should say. Apologies. Uh, it's not just that we don't want wind farms in our backyards, but it's also we don't want electricity pylons in our backyards. We don't want we don't want the infrastructure of electricity to appear anywhere near where we where we sit, you know, where we have our barbecues and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and that's driving a lot, of, a lot of activism around building some uh, renewable infrastructure. Yeah, everybody wants a wind farm, just not, 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 not next to them. <laughs> that's right. There's a fair bit of that. There was, there was a lovely interview that I read, and people saying, "Oh no, we don't want the wind farms. We don't want the wind farms." And I said, "Well, what about bringing some, you know, electrical pylons through?" No, we don't want those either. I mean, it, it's in the end, you, you know, you're going to have to make a decision. Um, about what you want, otherwise, yeah. The part of the going. part of the, the problem governments going, uh, not just in Australia, this is the case, but in other other parts of the world as well, facing is that if you ask people, do they want action on climate change? They say yes, but if you add in, do do you want action that's going to cost you personally money or going to cost the you aesthetically personally? Then the answer becomes, well, not quite so much. <laughs> yeah. Can we just wait till the next bushfire yeah. season's over, and uh, you know, yeah. then, I'll, then I'll let you know. Uh, it's raining here in the Southern Highlands, very gloomy today, and we, we, we're enjoying seeing the rain. We had a fair bit on the weekend. Uh, don't need tons more, but we but we just like to keep everything just a bit green. Well, can, can you let's nice. tell you that the weather we're in Hong Kong. This is unusual for us. The weather is good. It's absolutely beautiful at the moment. Cool but sunny and no humidity. You've got coal. You've, you've got you've got re, you've got brisk August. Uh, yeah, autumn yeah, 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 yeah. Like but it's good weather here um, to be treasured because we don't get a lot of it. Speaking of rain, I am living under a tin roof now, folks, and you might hear a bit of that. So we do apologise for any background noise you do get. Um, and there is a, a fair bit of rain around. It's very misty, misty mountains in, in the Southern Highlands. Uh, Mike Bozzolo, Jack, um, he doesn't have to go home, but he can't stay at the Home Affairs, the Department of Home Affairs no. anymore. Uh, an entirely predictable decision once it was learned um, that he'd been sending out texts to a Liberal Party, shall we call him a hack? It was certainly a connected sort of Liberal Party, described... Described as a power broker. Yeah, I'm always a bit sceptical as to who's a power broker. It might be true, and I, and I don't know enough about that part of the Liberal Party to tell yeah, you. Bruce. But they were fairly unpleasant texts and, and showed a sort of partisan approach, but it also showed that, um, well, the Australian Public Service Commissioner found uh, that a lot of the comments that he'd made were 
unpleasant. And also he had sort of breached the public service code of conduct on at least 13 other occasions. Uh, they were overarching, gee, I love that term, Jack, that, that makes you serious when you use the term overarching allegations in which Mr. Pozzolo used his duty, power, status or authority uh, to seek to gain a benefit uh, or advantage for himself, Ooh, engaged in gossip and disrespectful critique of ministers and public servants, that's what I was alluding to before, and failed to maintain confidentiality of sensitive government information, failed to act apolitically in his employment, and failed to disclose a conflict of interest. His $910,000 a year salary, Jack, he had a, he had a year to run on that, but they won't pay him out. He's been dismissed and... We might see him rattling, rattling a tent. Yeah, the, the, the only one of the five things that I would take issue with is the, the engaged in gossip and disrespectful critique of ministers and public servants. I think that's perfectly okay myself. Oh, that's a bit, that's a bit easy. That's the yeah. soft targets, Jack. I mean, look, yeah, it, it, it probably wasn't great. He, he had a crack at both sides, but mainly Labor, I would have thought, um, in the text that I've read. The question really is, Jack. I mean, he's a he was a very powerful figure, of course. And do they, and do they just become? Do people like Pozzolo just become? I'm not going to use the word corrupted. Do do they, do they become so powerful? Do they believe their own publicity to the point where they just sort of the, the J. Edgar Hoover problem. Yes, <laughs> that's very good. He's the J. Edgar Hoover of the Australian public service. In in. Not in all ways, perhaps the transvestism. Yeah. I don't know. Um, um, I, I couldn't. I, I wouldn't comment uh, on that. But yeah, th- this is this is an exercise really in the abuse of power, in my view, and and that that basically him running that super ministry. It was, became a super ministry where Peter Dutton became minister for immigration, and then it became the, the Department of Home Affairs. Um, the biggest, I would think, even bigger than Treasury in terms of public service employees. Um, and like I say, a million dollars a year or 90 grand for that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't and agree I think, with the... I think you start thinking that I, you... I didn't agree with the creation of the Ministry of Home Affairs at the time and still don't. I think that was a mm. poor idea. We have to remember that it's perfectly within the power of government to dispose of even senior public servants um, you know, they are servants of the Crown, and, 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 and in effect, the Crown is decided by the Governor-General in Council, which is the, which is the Cabinet. So it's perfectly within their, within their remit to decide, well, this chap's gotten a bit too big for his boots, uh, and we'll move him on. I think I said nine ten. It's $931,000 a year. Not bad money, if you can get it. I had nearly a year left to run his contract back then. He's been turfed out. There will be no uh, uh, paying out of the contract. He's been paid to. You know, it's like anyone who's has their employment terminated, Jack. That's it. Here's your here's your pink slip and and your employment separation certificate, and off yeah. you go. We won't be paying you any more money, other than those things that he'd be owed by way of untaken. Yeah, I'm just money. just a little surprised that that about six months ago he didn't retire to spend more time with his with his family or his golf or something. Well, that gets us back to that absolute power argument, Jack, and they just can't, some of these guys just can't let it go. 
Um, all I can tell you is that within the Canberra Public Service and within my context there, not substantial but enough, there is, shall we say, not joy but a sense that a sense that they'll be better, their, their lives will be better for his passing. Uh, I had a look around this morning and I think quiet satisfaction would be the, the term I would use to describe it. Yeah, yeah. No glee, no glee. Nothing class, classless like like a, a show of schadenfreude, but very content to see Mr. Pizzello on his way. There'd be a few senators who'd be pretty happy to see him go to who, who he's clubbed around the head at estimates of hearings over the Yeah, he, he was certainly formidable. There's no doubt about that at all. Yeah, he, he, he didn't, didn't mess about. And so there'd be quite a few people quite pleased to see him gone. Um, we move on to Israel and Gaza now. Ceasefire, as we say, associated with the withdrawal, with the release of hostages. Um, I, I saw an interview again on 7.30 with a doctor in one of the hospitals in Gaza. It didn't look chaotic. Yes, he, he was saying that this doctor was saying that they are very, very short of certain supplies, particularly painkillers, um, and, and especially for those people with burns, um, serious burns. Um, but I'm getting a sense that we're starting to return to normal, Jack. There will, I mean, beyond this ceasefire that no one was allowed to call for, and beyond this ceasefire, you can see, would you see a raising of hostilities or a diminishment? Um, I think the Israelis will want to do more damage to Hamas. Yeah, I, 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 I see that too. But that's, you know, that may come down to the sort of Mossad type strikes rather than boots on the infantry. It may do. It may do. So... Let's, let's talk. I know you've got a few things you want to talk about here, you know, in terms of the, the prosecution of the war and its effectiveness uh, for Israel, and that's, you know, beyond the boots on the ground. But I just want to talk to you about now about Netanyahu's problems. I think a lot of analysts and a lot of people generally sort of forget that six months ago there were 500,000 people on the streets in Tel Aviv pretty much every weekend calling for his head. And uh, I think there is a, there may well be a general view that his time as, um, as a leader of Israel think, or coming to I think that's more likely than not. Um, the history of, in Israel is that, well, first of all, what happened on October 7th was an atrocity committed by Hamas, but it was also a, an intelligence failure on the part of the Israel, of the IDF and the, and the Israeli government. And I think there will be a price to pay for that failure. And, yes. and, and it's most probable that Netanyahu will pay that price. He and, he and others will pay a price for that. At the moment, the, the country is, um, united in their determination to, to do enough damage to Hamas to, pre to prevent a, a, a repetition Hamas, yeah. of this. Hamas have, have openly said that October the 7th is just to be the first wave and they want to continue to do that. And there will be and there is a determination amongst the Israelis to make sure that cannot happen. But yes, there will be a price to, political price to pay within Israel. But when I say they're united, they're a very disputatious lot, the Israelis. So there's some, some fiery internal politics going on as to how the war should be conducted, <laughs> etc. The political spectrum 
for Israelis and for Jewish people generally is, is quite extraordinary, all the way from your sort of auto-anti-Semite, all the way to ultra-nationalists and neo-Nazis. There's the group of Russian Jews in Israel who are yes. Nazis, get yes. around the swastikas yes. and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, there's an enormous spectrum of political thought there. That's why there's always two dogs so you can, um, around the world, so you can have one that you'll go to and one that you wouldn't set foot in for, for any amount of money, you know. <laughs> the the uh, Netanyahu is, is facing corruption charges, and of course, as part of his way of defending that was to try and basically usurp uh, the the High Court, the Israeli High Court, and that's what led to people getting on the streets. Very, very unhappy with him. There are some really interesting charges there, Jack. I know you probably looked at them. We we won't cover them in any detail today, but they they relate to his allegedly corrupt relationships with a number of senior business figures. That includes Australia's Jamie Packer, but that's that's a, a little bit of clickbait for Australians perhaps. There was there were gifts exchanged or gifts given um, by Jamie who lived in a lived in a mansion not far away from Bibby and his wife. There's also the uh, uh, the uh, gifts and alleged bribery coming from um, a, a very, very interesting character by the name of um, <coughs> uh, Milchin, um, who is a Hollywood producer, Jack. You, you I, I just, just quickly, I haven't, I haven't really done a deep dive on He's ma- he made some great, he's produced some great films and some real rubbish, by the way, I mean, straight to video stuff. Um, but uh, never confirmed, but he's likely to have been a very senior figure in Mossad and was very senior was a very senior in, 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 in creating Israel as a nuclear state. And now he's a billionaire, Jack. And now he's a, he's a Hollywood producer, very dapper fellow, bond, uh, 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 shaven, bald, uh, and, uh, and a mover and shaker in the Hollywood scene. Um, there are, there are other allegations in regard to Netanyahu's alleged corrupt relationships with Media and communications misses in in the state in, within within Israel, and I, I just you know we were just wondering when it was all going to be up. There, there won't be an, a, an election. Well, there's not an election scheduled until 2026 in Israel. They had one last year that ended up basically as a as a, you know Netanyahu scrambling for for any sort of coalition that he could possibly create. And I, I just wondered, you know, what's your thoughts on a, you know, an election? You've got a very disparate sort of group of political parties. There are sort of 20, 25 political parties that all grab a little bit of vote uh, in Israel. Um, wouldn't an election sort of clean the area? Well, I don't think it's going to happen for a while. And trying to pick the result of it would be like trying to pick the winner of the 2026 Melbourne Cup. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Well, they're, they're not quite a handicap race, too, so mm. it makes it even harder. Um, yeah, so look, I, I was just looking at that yesterday and I thought, gee, when's an election due? And I, I, I had it fairly soundly in mind that it was last year. They had one last year and they had them every four. So a, a, an election won't get rid of him, but it'll be really interesting to see how world leaders deal with Netanyahu because there's always that sense... I don't know if you've ever noticed it, that, that sort of dead man walking and, and world leaders, whenever they go to an APEC or a G8 or a G20, they'll avoid the bloke who's, 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 who's dead meat because they just don't want to be seen photographed next to a bloke who's going to get the flick. So that's the, that's the next thing to watch, listeners, that sort of body language around, around the multilateral diplomacy at the pointy end.
You think that they'll go? That they'll, and I agree with you. I think that they'll go. That they'll go into Gaza and try and destroy at least the effectiveness of Hamas going but, forward. But they, what, what then? They, Jack? They, they, I mean, we they talk will about do that, the and, 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 the, and they're doing a very good job at the moment of keeping their neighbours comfortable with what they're doing. I'm talking about the other Arab countries around them um, who all want to get rid of Hamas, or, or by the Syrians perhaps, who want to get rid of Hamas as well. And provided the Israelis do a good job of, of defanging Hamas, they will, they will retain the support of their neighbours. Uh, and that's important. Hmm. Okay. Um, I just want to leave. The Vice News reporter gained access to Hamas tunnels and interviewed one of the terrorists, a 25-year-old who joined Hamas as a teenager. And the Vice reporter said, you guys fired the first rockets. And then this, this is well before October 7. This is May 2021. And the Hamas terrorist said, the first aggression is the occupation. Now, I can understand that point of view coming from a Hamas agent, but this seems to be something that's adopted across the West now. It is. It, it's, it's, this is a, a, a standard argument. But violence is okay. Violence is okay. The sort of October 7 stuff is, is justifiable. Yep. Yeah. And, and of course it's not. You know, killing civilians, no matter who does it, is never excusable in any way. And this is why we came very, very hard on the on, on the Ukraine because there they were ha- having, you know, there the, the were disputed borders in the east, but no particular hostilities. And all of a sudden, people in Kiev are dodging missiles and, and airstrikes. Uh, it, it, it's it's not acceptable in the twenty first century. It should never be acceptable. Might have been acceptable in the thirteenth or the or the twelfth century with Genghis Khan, but it's not it's not acceptable now. All right. What's Piers been up to? Jack, what are you well, saying about all that? He's been having everyone on his program to interview them from all over the the, the, the spectrum. Yeah. He's doing a pretty good job. One thing he said on Twitter, he said that peace and freedom should be fundamental human rights, not something won through horrific violence. And I just don't think that's true. Well, I, I, I'm not sure what he's trying to say there, but what I would say is... You cannot have peace and freedom through horrific violence. You're, you're going to you, there, there are going to be there are going to be consequences from the horrific violence that you won't find peace. Yeah, and freedom well, that way. I think we live in a much more dangerous world than that, and I think sometimes horrific violence is the only way you get peace and peace and freedom. Well, I don't think you can yeah, have peace okay. and freedom if you if you've committed acts of horrific violence because the violence will beget the violence. I mean, that's it's, it just becomes a cycle. But anyway, he has been has been in reasonably good form um, uh, and keeps popping up on my Instagram feed. And I have seen a few of the shows. He's but uh, just as a media question, question, his that new business model they've got of basically running his shows as a YouTube show more than anything else seems to be working quite well. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what his numbers are in Australia or indeed in, in, in the UK. Australia. In the UK and America, um, the numbers are very good. I don't know what they're like in Australia, but he can be seen to be very grating and and a bit annoying. The Americans didn't fall in love with him. Um, but he is an unusual thinker. I think that's the I think that's the thing I like about him. He he's he's you, you, 
he will surprise you. Um, well, well time time. what I like about him is he is a thinker. Do we have a reader last, a listener last week tell us that he didn't, he found himself not agreeing with either of us um, when, he, when he was listening to our podcast? Yes, that was, yes, I won't give you his, won't give his name up because I haven't asked if I could. But it was a lovely, lovely comment. And he said, you know, I don't yeah. agree with either of you. But it's, and he said it was a challenging listen. And I hope that's and, not the construction and, noises. And I, uh, not just I thought about it after you told me that, and I was quite delighted and would like to meet this chap or, or, or person, I'm not sure, you know. Chapman, uh, yeah. Because I thought, well, that means that you think for yourself, and I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And that's what we sort of ask all people. We don't ask people to agree with us whole as bowlers. What we, what we ask people to do is, you know, think, think about some, some, some issues that we've raised. Uh, in our opinions, they're not sacrosanct at all. Um, certainly yours aren't, Jack. I'll tell you, I'm about to tear a few, a few apart. I'm perfect, I'm perfectly comfortable um, with that. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a sort of Twitterific, Twitterification of, of thinking too, that there's a lot of collectivism that goes on. People don't do a lot of their own thinking. Um, uh, but it's all out there. And we'd like to think that we can sort Just of speaking of Twitter for a second, I thought this was peak at Twitter. This is, this is on Twitter yesterday. Israel was instrumental in sabotaging Jeremy Corbyn during the two elections he was Labor leader. And it goes on and on. If there was any natural justice at all, there would be another election with Jerry, Jeremy Corbyn as Labor leader, free from Israeli interference. So the um, that's actually an ad for Israel. If Israel managed to save Jer- the UK from having Jerry Corbyn as a, as a prime minister, they've done well. Did you come across the guy's been arrested and charged now? I'm just looking for his name. I sort of really picked up about this. The New Yorker, former State Department, a State Department appointee in the in the in the Obama uh, in the Obama years, and I think he had you know sort of appointments of a lesser. I mean, he was basically acting acting. I think acting deputy. Uh, secretary in yep. the Middle East there in the Obama Can't think of his name, but I know who you mean. Um, did you see? Yeah, I, I, look, I'm, I'm trying to find it while we're talking, but, but did you see that sort of level of abuse? He's been charged now. I think they, they call it fourth degree race, hate and harassment, that sort of stuff. What on earth was he thinking? Yeah, some people have done some very, very odd things around all of this. Some people who you thought, yeah, gee, you should be smarter really than that. Has. Well, he's ha- he doesn't have the dumb excuse available to him, no, does he? I mean, I actually saw the. I saw. I think there were four tapes or, or where he's or, haranguing the hell out of vendors. Yeah, and it was just a, just appalling. And I thought, I thought, what's what's his objective here? And and maybe this doesn't have one. And then I thought, well, maybe he's trying to, you know, he, he probably hasn't. Well, he hasn't had an appointment. I noticed his. Previous employers backed off on him 100 miles an hour, uh, and and obviously hasn't been in work much at all. Um, and maybe I thought he, he's he's angling for a spot in far right yeah. media. It's like all the people who are walking around the cities tearing down the posters of the, or have been tearing down the posters of the hostages. Uh, well, I saw that. I saw one of those. And some very prominent people. Some, some burly New Yorkers. Who, um, Stuart Solowitz, listeners, I, I'd forgotten 
I, I, I had forgotten the name. Stuart Selberwitz, and he has now been charged with a, with a, with a variety of offences. But New Yorkers being New Yorkers, they're not the blunt, uh, often sweary, and a little bit hostile people. We think they've sort of rallied around the street vendor. So he's probably uh, picked up, his business has picked up significantly since then. So there is a little bit of good news there. It has really rattled a lot of brains. It has. It, Jack? Um, I, I did see the Greens. When Maureen Faruqi has turned up in Palestinian Garb in the Senate, I don't know why. Do, why do senators think it's 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 it, that, that every now and then they have dress up days? I mean, we had Hanson in there in the burqa, and then and then Maureen Faruqi did this. Well, <laughs> mate, Nick Xenophon used to turn up outside of the chamber uh, in various various costumes. Um, but and then Adam Ban said, "Look, we've you know, just in case you know this, this that he said, we're not anti-Semitic at all. No, not even a little bit." Mm, interesting times. It really has rattled quite a few brain, and and Stuart, Stuart, if his name is, is certainly one of those. Um, <coughs> what's going on? The this Swiss. One, this is sort of a Europe-wide thing, but the, the the Swiss are coming down very hard on Hamas. You know, they you know they famously um, neutral, neutral to the point where they were quite happy to keep doing business with. Um, uh, uh, the Nazis no, right through World War II. Got soldiers, got soldiers equipped with pen knives, Jack. You know they, they've got to be, can't get involved in combat. Yeah, uh, but they have gone closer to adopting a position than they usually do, and that's because they're suffering from some migration stress. I think we could call it, and that's happening around Europe. In in the Netherlands, the leading party in their election last week. Was the party led by uh, what's his name, Gert Wilders? Gert Wilders. Mm. Uh, this is a man who's called for uh, for mosques torn uh, down. Yes, and found what we might call an ultra nationalist. Um, it, it's worthwhile just because it is sort of staggering. It's worthwhile sort of measuring this. He, he, he's won 37 seats in a 150 seat lower house, 12 more because, like most of Europe, most of most European nations, there's a, a splintering of parties and, 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 a, and a wide range of middle and small parties. Wilders led PVV, won 37 seats in a 150-seat lower house, 12 more than the outgoing Prime Minister Mark Rutt's Conservative Party. And now he's being sort of described as the Netherlands Prime yeah, It's no certainty, in my view, that he, Not he, he will get to be Prime Minister. He needs, I think, another 39 seats to, to get a majority. What I found was interesting was that on the polling... The support for his party went up from 12%, under 12% on October 7 to 23% when the election was done last, last week. And that indicates to me, or suggests to me, that uh, whilst there have been big pro-Palestinian demonstrations in the Netherlands, that a, a majority of the people don't agree with them. Yeah, look, and I think there are, there are, there are tensions around climate policy. I think there are tensions around immigration, as you've pointed out there. And, and there are, and, and the Netherlands is, is like many European countries where coalitions must be formed, uh, in order for, for the government to proceed. And, and often when those, 
when uh, coalitions of convenience are created, you, you'll find some fairly sort of, you know, some fairly basic government failures. And so, as we sort of discussed uh, elsewhere in the world, when you do have failure of government, all of a sudden the more ex- versions of very ex- more extreme political parties uh, tend to find a Well, I think immigration's the big driver of this in Europe. So, you talk about forming a government. In the case of Belgium, they don't. Well, they didn't, they didn't have a government yeah. for about four years and, and everything worked pretty well. I was quite surprised. I mean, it's kind of amusing, but it's not the way it really worked. I mean, Brussels was still able to push troops into Afghanistan, for example, without having a government, without any coalition being created. Um, so they could, you know, government could continue to function at a basic level, but there were certain things that were missing. So, so without government, they weren't able to drive at promoting citizenship, you know, being more open about immigration with existing citizens and those sorts of things. So there, there were, there were, you know, those sorts of things go when there's no one there to have yeah, to Yeah, well, go. you know, again, this is a Europe-wide thing. In Ireland, they've had riots in the last week. A, um, an, Im- a, an immigrant, been, been in Ireland for 20 years, an Irish citizen, yeah, Irish but, citizen. but nevertheless, an it's immigrant an stabbed a teacher and a child outside a what well, was effectively a preschool in Dublin, and there were after that there were anti-immigration riots in Dublin, uh, including the burning of a of a migrant hostel. Well, one of the Garda cars must be terrifying. I mean, we don't want to endorse this in any in any single way. Two police officers, two two Garda, were in a car. Window smashed, sur- car surrounded by these hoodlums, and, and then set alight, and they were lucky to be alive. It's not all gloom, though, Jack. The Irish situation in particular, the one of the heroes of that event who actually was able to uh, detain um, the uh, the assailant was a uh, Brazilian-born um, uh, yeah. delivery drive yeah. food took, delivery took off drive. the helmet and gave um, the black and, a, ch- a, a smack over the head with the helmet and apparently I mean whether it was that or whether it was later um, the assailant is now believed to have been suffering very serious uh, brain yeah. injury <laughs> and so we'll see what happens with the trial but the Brazilian a hero uh, when a, a, a GoFundMe was organised for him in a great Irish way of buy him a pint and that raised three hundred thousand euro. I know there are some. I know you want to go through some figures there, but I just really want to go to the. This is the Garda considered um, the man. The main suspect was a man, man in his late forties and fifties who had also taken has also been taken for treatment with serious injuries. Uh, I read the uh, the Irish Daily Mirror this morning that Irish people are dobbing in friends and family who were involved in the riots, Jack. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't surprise um, me. But Garda Commissioner Drew Harris blamed the unrest on a lunatic hooligan faction driven by far right ideology, while Minister for Justice Helen McKenty appealed for calm and said a thuggish and manipulative element was using the earlier incident to wreak havoc. So there's some motivations here, Jack. There, you know, it was an awful crime, and people came to the rescue, including an immigrant who's on a tourist visa, I think, the Brazilian fellow. And 
and, and the behaviour of, of those described as far right and that far right element was just completely outrageous. Yeah, as well as the, the people who were involved in the riot, though, I, I think it's fair to say that there's pretty good evidence that there is a lot of community disquiet with the level of migration into Ireland. They, they're about 12% now, I think, of the Irish population are people who were born outside uh, Ireland. That's smaller than it is in Australia, but it's a very different sort of country. Well, mm-hmm. five million people in Ireland, 5.033, and they are a nation of immigrants. The Irish diaspora exists pretty much all around the world, certainly in Australia, the United States, Canada, the UK, of course. I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I see this as a sort of one-off. I know you've got some Twitter things there that, you know, sort of so-called sane people saying, yeah, well, we all started getting a little bit upset about immigration. And I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, well, I've, I've been hearing this from Irish people for for two years, I've got to say. So. Yeah, perhaps what we should be looking at rather than concerns about immigration is looking at why the, the hard right, the far right, the ultra-nationalists, the fascists and the Nazis... Uh, are, are in reprise. I mean, why they are on the rise again. And that's something that, it, that, that we can certainly look through the prism of immigration, but there's a whole host of it. If you want to look at a, 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 the answer to what, to, the answer that I think is why this is happening right across Europe, there was a, a situation in Sweden where they've, uh, they've, they've, they've been doing a deep dive onto what's gone wrong with it. And, and there was a couple of quotes that stood out to me. One's from a criminal defence lawyer um, there. He says, I don't want to say migration is what went wrong. I would rather say integration went wrong. You were born here, but you still feel very foreign. You were born here, but still the, the doors are closed to you and you have not been let in. This has a psychological effect, the criminal lawyer says. The real problem is, is how we failed integrating. Um, and, and, and a migrant himself said, Swedes make you feel foreign, even when you have the passport. Even my kids who were born here, they blame immigrants for everything. But this gang violence affects me, my families, and my friends as well. That's what's gone wrong right across Europe, is they haven't integrated a whole generation of migrants. Well, they haven't, yeah. I guess what you're saying by extension is that governments and and communities more generally have not been welcoming. The the, the fault's on both sides. Firstly, the, 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 not just the government, but the community haven't taken these people into their community. Um, and secondly, the people, the, the, the new arrivals have sought to keep too much of their, the culture they arrived with as their own. I, I know in Australia and, in, uh, in, in the, mig- in, in the migrate, migrant boom of the post-war migrant boom, the government came up with this term New Australians as, as a way of making the new arrivals Australians. Maybe different Australians, but they're Australians. And what that led to was uh, people kept only so much of their culture as was compatible with living in a country like Australia, and that works. But the, the way that Europe's choosing to go about migration is never going to work. Well, we just we will revisit the the Irish episode next week. We need to explore it in greater depth. 
I think, because there has been a response from a sort of knee-jerk response from uh, from the political leadership. I'm as PM Leo Varadko has uh, vowed to crack down, making an offence to possess hate speech on phones and computers and things like that. I, I, I want to have a look on how they're defining that, Jack, before we, we have a proper discussion about it. Vertly, it seems like a, a serious imposition and largely an unworkable one. Um, but we'll have a look at that. It's what's called CJ Bill 22, and, and it's been delivered in response to, not so much about immigration, but it's been, been delivered in response to the what's been described as the ultra-right arm thugs on the streets, of the beautiful streets, it must be said, of Dublin. Uh, so we'll deal with that next week, Jack, because we've got to move on um, and we do have, well, I just really briefly want to touch on the United States. I looked at some polling for Joe Biden. Have, has he reached rock bottom yet? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's really yeah. the polling is terrible, and it's really bad among yeah. young people as well, which you would the, think the, he'd be the comment that really uh, from from a Washington Post journalist uh, that I thought summed up the week in the United States. I think a lot of voters on both sides of the aisle have convinced themselves that the demented old crook the other party is running is so obviously unelectable that their own party doesn't need to worry about electability, and I think that's where, that's pretty much where they are. Because if you look at that polling, the vast majority of people don't want either of them, either of the two major candidates. Uh, we're just going to wrap up our world news with the sandwich monopoly, Jack. There is Subway. I think Subway now, well, no, not now, but, but several years ago, passed McDonald's in terms of number of global outlets. And I think it's got it well and truly covered now. There's Jimmy John's. These, this is another franchise that the listeners in Australia wouldn't know very well, but they're, they, they make a, they make a, according to people in the know, a better sandwich than Subway do. And then there's McAllister's Deli. I mean, and, and, and there's private equity deals that'll sort of put them all we'll together. Put them all in the same ownership. So, yes. So, will <laughs> be, it's not a monopoly, is it? It's, no, yes, it, it definitely is. I was getting my terms mixed up. It's a, it's a sandwich it monopoly. Is. And Senator Warren's right on the cut. And she had what she said. We don't need another private equity deal that could lead to higher food prices for consumers. The F, F, FTC, um, which is their it trade, is. The trade yeah. commission. Is right to investigate whether the purchase of Subway by the same firm that owns Jimmy John's and McAllister's Deli creates a sandwich monopoly. And yeah, well, once they have a sandwich shop monopoly, they'll be able to charge five hundred dollars for a ham and cheese sandwich. Jack, is that going to happen? I don't <laughs> think so, because there are market principles at work here. Uh, yeah, the barriers to entry to making uh, sandwiches not high. <laughs> then it's. Look, to do it well um, requires a bit of skill, um, but uh, to knock it out, knock it out on uh, on a hoagie—not so much, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> so we'll let you know what evil is, is is going to be perpetrated in the name of the perfect sandwich uh, coming soon. In sport, we've, we're in that period, Jack, aren't we? You know, well, it's late November. There'll be a test match starting, I think, fairly soon. Um, uh, Travis Head looks absolutely knackered. He looks. <laughs> They're still playing that T20, uh, T20 tournament over in India. I think India are 2-0 in front. And it's got to be one of the most pointless 
fixture I've come across. Uh, and then we've got some test cricket being played later this year. But we are in, are in a bit of a lull sports-wise, except for the AFLW Grand Final. And I think it's North Melbourne and, it and is the Lions. Indeed. Is yeah, I watched a little bit of, we'll a little, little bit of both uh, the semis. <coughs> and, and I still think they should shorten the grounds a little bit. They're very low-scoring events. Where they where are they playing the final? That's at Icon yep. Park. That's at Carlton. Princess Princess. Princess Park. It'll always Princess be Princess Park, Park to me. You know. Yes, I know. Well, I'm starting to call it Icon because you know that's what all the guys say. Carlton. Um, that's what all the guys at Carlton call it. Uh, yeah, and that's not a bad ground. It's you know it's it's I think from the old days about 165 meters. Yeah, yeah. it was it was always known as the 43 meter line, uh, the the arc at, at Princess Park. Yeah, it's it's not the longest ground. I mean, it's not not. All that small either, but I've, I've seen the, I've seen the AFLW teams get around there. It seems to be a pretty good, and it's, it's a really good community ground, as you mm. would attest. Yeah, I'll see what the see what the Fenwick about five fifteen afterwards after the game. Hmm. There you go, very 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 civilized, and 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 so we wish the AFLW Grand Finals the very very best. North Melbourne play Brisbane. I wouldn't like to make a tip, but I'll tip from the heart. And go for yeah, the I thought they were just a little bit better, but still, we'll see. All right, what else have we got? Well, the, there was the AFL draft, and you'd really have to be, you know, a complete nonce like me on the footy to, to pay much attention to it. But Carlton looked to have picked up one very good football from Glenelg. It was, I think, in that pick 23. Um, looks to be not quite ready, but he won't be far away. Uh, and we picked up a Fantasia Jack, ex-Essendon. And I reckon he'll add a little bit of grunt around the small forwards. Ex-Essendon well and Port Adelaide. And, yeah, and I, Port I used Adelaide, to think that yeah, no one took any no, interest in this, but social media has been chock full of it. People, people are fascinated by it. Well, the Eagles got the, the gun... Uh, there was a, you know, standout number one draft pick and, and a bit of... Bit of doing, we were dealing with North Melbourne. They got they got the number one draft pick. Uh, Harley Jack, Harley yes, Reed, Harley Cruz, Harley Reed. Thank you. And uh, and I've seen a few clips of him. He looks like just about ready mode AFL footballer. Big boy, big big body midf- midfielder. Up, uh, From the little country Cruz. town of Tongala in northern Victoria, which I used to spend a bit of time in. Yeah, Tongala. Yeah. Mm. So what else have we got? Well, we've got a new pair of rising stars in golf, Australian brother and sister, Minwoo Lee oh. and Minji Lee. Minwoo is the uh, is the chap. Yes, he just won a tournament mm. last week. His sisters won a few. They are young. Uh, they were born in Korea and came to went to Perth with their parents when they were, oh, I don't know, uh, primary school age, and they look like they could be a coming thing. And while well, we stay, we stay with matters Southeast Asian, the Japan Cup. What was run, run on Sunday, and the, they get oh, okay. a huge crowd, much bigger than the Melbourne Cup, I think. We, and we, we got a winner. Horse Who won? Qu- horse Japanese horse Equinox. And he's the, he's oh. the best thing you can throw a saddle on in the world at the moment. All right, mate. Now take us out. We need to wrap yeah, up quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like this. The Rolling Stones are, are back on tour with their new album. And, and I saw the posters for the tour starting in the United States. And as did Kyle Smith see the, the posters. And he noted, like I did, 
that it's sponsored by the AARP, which is the American Association of Retired People. And Carl Smith's comment on that, the saddest but most accurate corporate partnership ever. And tickets could be very affordable considering most of their fans are now dead. They've been around for a very, very long time. I think Mick Jagger just is on the cusp of age. <coughs> yes, and, they've, um, they've gone from being the, tra- the transgressive, cutting-edge people to being sponsored by the AARP. Yeah, and 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 and, and Keith Richards' ability—he just looks like he could live forever now. I mean, nothing's been able to knock him over on the way, so he couldn't live transfusions. Forever. Yeah, I think they do a fair bit of that. All right, well, that takes us uh, to the end of our program, and we want to thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Um, just a quick note, if you want to drop us a line about the show, uh, offer some comments, criticisms, whatever, questions that you would like answered, you can drop me a line on Twitter on at Jack the Insider. My DMs are open, and you get hold of Jack yeah, on Hong Substack. Yeah, Please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. And look, that takes us out. And we will speak to you next week, listeners. See you for now.